Welcome to Elan Restoration Fellowship, where Jesus is King, HaMelech, Lord, Hashem, and Messiah, Mashiach. And now, Pastor Billy Elias. So, we have left chapter four. I mean, we have left chapter three. And we are now in Revelation chapter four. You will notice, however, that a little bit of chapter three, we're going to speak about because it's a good reminder for what John is seeing and what is happening. There is a disconnect in theology today about a very Hebraic, very Hebraic philosophy and doctrine that goes back to the book of Genesis, even in chapter eight. Even before then, with this man named Enoch, because the scripture says, and Enoch lived, I don't remember the amount of years, and he walked, he walked with the Lord, in Hebrew, the halacha. In other words, he vanished from the planet. That is what we would call the, that was what we would call the catching up. It is not a Christian doctrine at all. In fact, the um, popular doctrine of today, for those who do study Revelation, would say that at chapter 4, we would have what is known in theology today as the rapture. Um, it is the popular doctrine, but I remind you that the popular doctrine at the time when Jesus came to the earth was that he was going to come, destroy the Roman Empire, and sit on the throne, taking the place of Caesar. It didn't work out the way the popular doctrine would say it did. In fact, there's many times in theology where the popular doctrine is wrong. And in this particular case, when we read through Revelation chapter 4, we're, we're going to really just read in verse 1. We have to put aside fear. We have to put aside anxiety. And we have to put aside that little voice that says, I don't need to study what comes next because I won't be here. We're going to talk tonight about a woman whose name was Margaret MacDonald. It was during the, she was born in 1820, no, 1815. She was 15 years old when the revival in Glasgow, Scotland broke out. Her brother started speaking in tongues. People started to come from all over because they were said to be able to speak and interpret their own tongue. And at 15 years old, Margaret MacDonald fell into a deep trance and she murmured an utterance that was 1,018 words. 
That 1,018 words changed theology forever. Because until Margaret MacDonald, the 15-year-old young lady in Glasgow, Scotland, went into her deep trance and started uttering, there was no such thing as a pre-tribulational doctrine. It didn't exist. Nowhere by rabbis, sages, Maimonides, some of the greatest scholars that have ever lived, had there ever been a pre-tribulation doctrine. So in 1830 was created this doctrine that says the church will be raptured before all hell breaks loose. So what we are going to do is we're going to look at this. Um, and I think a lot of the issues started because it's just like anything else. There always has to be, well, first of all, we know that scripture says in the mouths of two or three of marriage established. Amen? Mm -hmm. Okay. One of the issues with this doctrine and young Margaret McDonald was there was a, uh, a doctor at the time. His name was Robert Norton. Three years before Margaret McDonald uttered whatever she uttered, he came up with the idea that there was a pre-tribulational rapture. Three years later, when she spoke in tongues and she made this utterance, he grabbed it and made it doctrine, backing up what his thesis was. So in 1840, when he published his work, he made it concrete. 1840? And in 1840, the doctrine became accepted. Even though the leading scholars at the time rejected it and said it is not within the canon of scripture, it is not biblical that her vision may some parts be correct, but if only 90% is truth and 10% is wrong, what does that make it? But yet, the entirety of Christendom now hinges on the utterance of a 15-year-old in Scotland that it was translated. And by the time he got it, it was 10 years later. So, let's go to Revelation chapter 4, verse 1. The problem becomes that proponents of a pre-trib rapture will say that the church does not appear after chapter 4 up until the fourfold hallelujah, which I think is chapter 20. That is not the case. So what we have to do is understand exactly what's happening here in verse 1 of Revelation chapter 4 and what John was seeing, what God was saying to him, and the best way to do that is what? Through the Hebrew. Because believe it or not, a new English definition was given to a word because of young Margaret McDonald's utterance. Oh, really? It was a new word. 
It was an old English word that had a definition, but they gave it a new meaning because they spun it from Latin and Greek because there was no English word for it because it didn't exist because it's not a doctrine. So let's go to verse 1. After these things, I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven, and a voice like a trumpet, which I had heard speaking with me before, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must happen after these things. Now, one of the one of the the one of the, I don't want to say mystery, but one of the things that we have to understand is in Revelation chapter 3, verse 8, when he was speaking to the church in Philadelphia, and we went over this, it was last week or the week before, he says to Philadelphia, I know what you are doing. Look, I have put in front of you an open door and no one can shut it. So we have to remember when John is taken up. What day was it that he was taken up? He was taken up with his vision on Rosh Hashanah because he was celebrating Rosh Hashanah on the Isle of Patmos. So when he's taken up, it's not like he goes up and comes back down and goes back up again. This is the disconnect. So what he's seeing right now is what is to be. Because we've entered into third into the third dimension of Revelation. If you remember, chapter one is Jesus saying, I was. And then chapter two is, and chapter two and three is, I am. And starting in chapter four, it is, I will be. So for the next 18 chapters, it is future. What John is being privileged to see is the future. So he stands now and he says what? He sees an open door to Shamayim. He sees an open door to heaven. And the voice like a trumpet, which he heard speaking, said what? Come up here and I will show you what must happen after these things. Because... There's not an understanding of what John was doing, when he was doing it, and the time of the year. People automatically now say, this is him seeing the church. Pulled up in Revelation chapter 4. That's not what he's seeing. Understand what does the text tell us, even in English. It says, come up here, John, and I will show you what must happen after these things. After these things. It's the same message he gave to he gave to Philadelphia. And he said, to those who are winning, I will open the door and nobody can shut it. So what we have here in Revelation chapter one, or chapter four, verse one, we have an issue. Because when we go all the way back and you read the opening statement the opening narrative in revelation john is very quick to say this is the the message of jesus the messiah i was caught up on the on the day of the lord that's important for us to understand 
And I brought up Enoch, and I brought up, and we're going to talk about one of the Hebrew words that just happens to begin with the letter Gimel. And remember, Gimel meaning justice, charity, good, okay? So, but the thing is, what we have to understand is that this doctrine predates anything that modern theologians can say up until the 1800s. And this is after the King James Bible. And then suddenly a new doctrine is founded. And is it important? You know, before we go any further, here's the thing, because obviously we're going to talk about the rapture. Is this important? Does it matter? It absolutely matters. It matters beyond the shadow of any doubt it matters. Because we need to be prepared. As a Christian body, as the church, we need to know what is happening. That's why John gives us this. Because he's saying, you need to know what's coming next. We cannot take the mindset that we're not going to be here, so we don't care. What also happens then is we dismiss instruction and direction that comes directly from the Messiah to those who what? Hear. He says it to all seven churches. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. That's what he says. So when the church shuts its ears off out of fear, out of trepidation, out of anxiety, or just foolishness, we no longer hear. We rest back and we say, whatever's going to happen is going to happen. Come on in, boys. The water's fine. Which is great. But guess what? That's not the truth. We have to be responsible. When you look at the parables of the virgins and being prepared in the desert, in the darkness, the blackness of the desert in Israel, when there's no moon, and he says, your candles must be lit 24 hours a day, seven days a week, because you do not know when the bridegroom is coming to get his bride. Because you have to be the light in the darkness to guide people who have fallen astray. So that when I come, they will know me because of you. When we detract and subtract and add to the word of God, we close off our ears. So this is the kind of message that's going to go against popular doctrine. And people get angry because they get afraid. Because they don't know the truth. They don't understand the foundations of what John is being told by the Messiah to tell us. So, we talked earlier in, in, in Revelation chapter 3 verse 8 about Sha'ar and Nekiftah, the gate opens. It's pretty much the same language here. So John being taken up is now going fast forward, however many thousands of years it is, when the Messiah finally decides the great shofar sounds between Rosh Hashanah 
on Rosh Hashanah, those 48 hours with the whole thing, with the 10 days of awe and the judgment and all of this happening. He's been fast forwarded to see that great day. Wow. Okay. So John is seeing the great day. He's seeing the day. He's seeing it. He's seeing it unfold in the future. So one of the things that becomes an issue, Margaret McDonald's utterances, it was written down by human hands, right? So because it's written down, it's uninspired. We're not talking about God breathed. We're not talking that when man wrote um, from the, the prophets and on after Torah, we're not talking about a man that sits there, God inspired, where the canon says everything that this man has written and has heard is 100% spot on. If you remember through the seven spirits and, and what Paul says, prophet uh, scripture is good for, right? It, did, it meets the measuring rod. It's God breathed. This young lady, this was not God breathed. This was an utterance that was put to pen to paper. So here's the disconnect. That would be like me writing a new doctrine down and sending it across. And because everybody is going berserky, people are going to say, this is truth. Right? So what we have to understand is we have no evidence as to whether or not her utterance was edited. We don't know when it was written down. They didn't have a recording system back in the day. So as she's rambling on, at what point do they say, we need to write this down? Or after she's done with the rambling and the bambling, do they now go back and say, what did she say? What did she say? Do you understand? Here are thus the... the Common fact here. This is the investigative reporting. Did you know she was going to have it? And if so, were you 100% prepared to write it down? Now, question number one, did you edit it? Question number two, because it really wasn't around until this cat drags it up about 10 years later, what were the changes? How many changes were made? Where was it? Who wrote it down? Did she write it down? Who interpreted this? Because it says utterings and everybody was speaking in tongues. So was it spoken in tongues? Was it spoken in English? Did her brothers interpret it? Because they were said to be able to interpret utterings. So here's the problem. Because right away, the doctrine of Ramo and the ding-donging and doing the tongues in public becomes an issue, doesn't it? Because we're not talking about um, ramblings. We're talking about, and we've said this a thousand times, intelligible words in the language that somebody in the audience would know, that someone would speak who doesn't normally know that language, and then this person's there. We, we, we're on the same page. So right away, there's an issue. So the problem becomes, how the heck does this become theology today? So part of the fallout was they didn't know what to call it because they didn't realize there were several Hebrew phrases when interpreted mean what they would eventually call the rapture. Mm. 
again, these things are thousands of years old. Thousands. Several of the words used were back in Genesis chapter 8, and I believe it's Genesis 21. Not to mention early on with Enoch. So what happens is, when this doctrine, I guess, becomes whatever it's supposed to be, they go back and they look at the revelation of John and they pull up 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, right? Everybody, that's the big one. And they say, how do we interpret this? What do we call this? Well, the problem was that there were two words that they were working with. The Latin rapio, which means rapid, and the Greek equivalent harpazo. Sounds like a gangster. Doesn't it? Yeah. It does, right? Yeah. It's the Harposo family. <clears throat> this guy's a hitman for the Harposos. But, which means to seize or snatch. So what they did was they came up with the word rapture because they took and combined the Latin and the Greek word. Now, rapture is an old English term meaning pleasure. Oh, really? Yes, and we're going to go over that. A feeling of intense pleasure. Many drug addicts that get high explain a rapture without even understanding what they're seeing. So that's what the word rapture means. So what they did was they added to the definition. Even today, if you go into Webster's Dictionary, the first definition you will find is the English word rapture, meaning a noun, a feeling of intense pleasure of joy. Then there's an asterisk that says... Rapture, also in Christendom, meaning to be seized or taken up, were what came into use in the 1800s. Like, even the Webster's Dictionary will recognize the fact that this was not the original word. But because they needed to promote their doctrine, because that's what revivals do, they change everything. Think about that, right? Isn't that what we're told? Revivals change everything. Oh, the only thing that should change is a person's heart. Yeah. That's it. There's nothing else to change. Yeah. That's because it goes under the same thing. Well, God hid it until he showed it to a 15. No, 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 no. As Solomon said, there is nothing new under the sun. He drives the point home. What was old will be new again. What was old, Enoch, will be new again. What we know, the rapture. That's it. <clears throat> so what I did, and I let you do it, is I printed out for you the 1,018 words of Margaret McDonald's utterance. You go ahead and read it. That'll be interesting. Don't do it now because we got stuff to do. <laughs> So, we have the Latin rapio, which means rapid. We have the Greek equivalent harpazo, sounding like a gangster, right? To seize or snatch. Now, in Hebrew, the equivalent is gazal, the gimel, right? Starts with the gimel. And I'm going to say this. Remember what gimel was a camel, but remember what the gimel stands for. Justice, charity, okay? Kindness. Humility. Remember that. Because in Genesis 21, 25, 
It says, now Abraham had complained to Abimelech about a well which Abimelech's servants had seized. The word seized there is a violent taking. It's taken by force. When Jesus says what? The kingdom of heaven is violence, is like violence which is taken by force. It's this word he's using. But not a force in the evil way. Because the word gimel is justice, charity, humility, and kindness. Right in this particular place, yes, it's being taken violently away from Abraham. But remember what Joseph said. What is meant for evil, God means for good. Then in Genesis chapter 8, verse 11, this is the story of Noah. The dove came into him in the evening, and there in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf or olive branch. So Noah knew that the water had cleared from the earth. Plucked. The Hebrew word is, you guessed it, gazal. Okay? Meaning to be taken. So when we see the use of gazal in the book of Genesis, we see a violent stealing away to protect the taken. That's what it is. So what is that great ingathering? What is the great pulling up? A violent taking away to do what? To protect us. He says it to the church in Philadelphia. I will take you and I will bring you to my house and protect you from what is happening as judgment is being worked out on the earth. We have to remember that. Okay? So again, he says to the Church of Philadelphia, I will protect you and that you will what? Stand at the door of the open gate to heaven. Okay. Now, there's something interesting that Messiah says to John, and he says it in Hebrew, and I'm going to have to give you a little bit of etymology like I've never done that before, but we're going to talk about the Aliyah. A-L-I-Y-A-H. Aliyah. Yes, it's a, it's a, it's a very, um, it's a very common girl's name now. Um, it's very common, okay? Aliyah means to rise up, to journey back, to go, to ascend. Now, believe it or not, the original word in Hebrew, going back when it was written, and in particular when it was written at the time of John, was Allah. You know, the Muslim god Allah. Mm -hmm. That's how it was written. That's how it was spelled. Mm -hmm. That's what Allah means. It means to rise and descend above. Oh, really? So, when the Muslims started using Allah as a god... The Jews said, we're not using this word anymore because now we're giving him credence where he doesn't deserve any. So we're going to add a vowel, which makes it Aliyah. So the original was Allah, but they wouldn't write it anymore because of what it became. So they made the word Aliyah. Now, the English translation is, well, Allah Hine, which means to come up. 
Okay, so when we see God or, or, or Jesus says to John, come up here, he's saying, Aliyah, he's saying, John, rise up. This is a warning for the church, the church. Okay, so we'll use a Christendom term, the church age. This warning is still in effect. It has not expired. Again, God's warnings and his words have no expiration date. The only one that can cancel them out is the Messiah himself. When he finishes, finishes, finishes his work and Satan is gone forever. Got a long way before that happens. So there's no expiration date. So this is important because in essence, what he says to John is that Hashem is telling you to come up here to come home. When you make an Aliyah, you're going home. The Jews today are making Aliyah to Jerusalem because they want to go home. Because the scripture says, the Tanakh says, at the end times in the final generations, my people will what? Come back. They will come back to Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. They will strengthen the borders of Israel. And we're seeing that today. So when God, I mean, to me, I don't know. Maybe I'm not really getting this out there. But to me, when I read that, that he says, Aaliyah, when he says, come up. We're talking about a guy that has a special audience. He literally goes up. To the gates of heaven, walks through to the throne room to see everything. God gives him a special invitation. Wow. And at this moment, people, this is nothing to do with the church. This is, happens to do with this man that God has called up. Now, Revelation chapter 4, right, correlates with the fourth Hebrew letter, Aleph, Bet, Gimel, Dalit. Dalet, D-A-L-E-T. In Hebrew, that word means door. So again, if we understand how these Hebrew letters overlay with the chapters, what we just saw was, this is a doorway. We are seeing into the doorway of the what the future is going to be. My goodness. He's opened up a doorway for us to see. Did you not read what God said to the seven churches? He who has ears, let them hear. This is to hear. This, what he's about to give, is to hear so that you can see what the Messiah is showing you. But because of a 15-year-old in the 1830s, we've changed doctrine. Because it happened during revival when everybody was rambling and ding-donging and running around. This is the issue. This is an issue within the church. Emotionalism and hyper-spiritualism has crept into doctrine and destroyed it. No longer do we have the men that will open the book and say, that's not right, this is why. Those guys are cast out. 
We want to run around. We want the happiness. We want the joy. We want we want the goodness, the feel goodness. Well, I, listen, if you tell me it's right and all that is true and all that is exactly the way it's supposed to be, then open your door and look outside and turn on the news and tell me why we have a Supreme Court justice now that is being nominated who seems to be pro-pedophile. What in the... <laughs> Well, what happened? Because, sister, brother, you can speak in tongues to the cows come home. It's not doing anything. I'm sorry. The lack of teachers and challenging of the word and challenging of this kind of stuff has thrown Christendom into utter chaos. So the Aaliyah. And again, the theological conundrum we're in exists because of the lack of understanding of chapter one. We, they, they don't grasp it. And then when you look at the Aleph and the Bet and the Gimel, and then we look at the Dalit, again, the Dalit is the doorway. It's the door. Now, Dalit in Hebrew means the doorway of a, a structure. It's built, which is why the word Dalit doesn't appear when you see gate. Okay, because the gate is a structure, but the dalit is a doorway in a home. It's surrounded by walls. Which is why this is the gateway to the rest. It's the gateway to the home. This is the gateway to Messiah's house. It's not the entrance. We're not going in yet. All he's done is open the door. See, what he's doing is saying to, he's just reiterating what he just said to Philadelphia. Behold, you stand at the gate. Mm. Just like he's saying here, we now stand at the gate. We're not going in. It's not time to go in. Because everything that's happened, hasn't, it hasn't happened. We don't, it's not done. So there's no going in. Until chapter 7. When we hit the Hebrew letter Zion, which means sickle, it's a reaping tool. It's also a weapon. When he reaps, anyway. So the Yalea, the come up. So come up here, he says. Now, when we look at 1 Thessalonians 4, 7, and again, when they were trying to prove um, Margaret McDonald's utterance, what we see, they, they did a lot of, they really went at 1 Thessalonians 4, 17, right? Because then we who are left still alive will be what? Caught up with them in the clouds to meet the Lord up in the air. And thus we will always be with the Lord. Now, here's interesting, because remember, we talked about the some of the, the, the Hebrew um, word gazal. Right? That means to be violently taken up for protection. Everybody with me there, right? Okay. Now, we look about the word for caught up in Hebrew is nelaka. It means to be ripped. Now, the word picture, since one of the roots has one of the words for lion, is of a lion tearing its prey to shreds. So when Paul writes, you're going to be caught up. It's like a devouring. It's like lion's jaws 
grabbing and yanking and pulling it away. So quick. So direct. Hence Jesus' statement. If you'd have known when I was coming, you would have prepared. But I come like a thief in the night. In the blink of an eye, I'll be gone. So again, it's like a lion tearing apart its food. So the mindset of the second coming and being caught up is Hebraic. We've seen it in Genesis. We've seen it in Enoch, right? Now, one of the things, and I've said this before, and I don't mean to be redundant, but we have to understand that nowhere in any writings by rabbis and sages over the thousands of years that the gospel was being preached did a pre-tribulation doctrine exist. It is still found nowhere in Jewish literature, anywhere. And I'm sorry, but if we're talking about the end times and John's having his revelation, and at the time there's no New Testament. Oh, I don't even, like I said, I don't even know if Paul and John knew each other or when they were writing what. But I'm going to go with the guys who wrote the daggum thing and have lived by the daggum thing whose Messiah came from it. Right? I'm not going by what some 15-year-old girl says while she's uttering, you know, in the middle of everybody losing their minds and then whoever it is that decides to write it down and interpret it. Ten years later, some cat says, this is truth because this is what I said three years before her. So guess what? It's going to make it truth. Later on in the 1800s, it was republished again, but you know what was left out? All the mistakes. As a way to further prove a Pentecostal type doctrine. The guy who republished, and I don't remember, he just omitted the mistakes and said, here you go. What are you kidding me? So there are several words and phrases, believe it or not, for the Hebrew word rapture. Because remember, rapture is just kind of, it was an English word that they added a definition to. Mm -hmm. So it meant, um, again, it, it, the exact definition, I'll go back to it because I don't have it memorized. The exact definition is a feeling of intense pleasure mm -hmm. for joy. The reason the word exists in Hebrew is because the word appears several times in the Song of Solomon. When he finds his rapture in the consummation with his bride. Exactly. It is a word used for the height of sexual intercourse where the rapture occurs and that is what it is likened to when we are with the Messiah in heaven. So the word definition existed in Hebrew, but they didn't bother to go and look because they were caught up with Latin and Greek. Understand when she had her vision, they went to the Latin and the Greek. They didn't go to the Hebrew. It was completely not even thought of. They made the word from the Latin and the Greek word, put it together, and they came up with, all right, we'll call it rapture. Now, in Hebrew, if you were to say it, because there's no word, but the rabbis and the sages would teach, yeah, we, we have two phrases. The first one we all know them is Yom Hadin. 
the day of judgment. Yom Kippur. That's 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 the rapture. Yom Hadim, the day of judgment, or some would call it doomsday. Because think that's really what it is, isn't it? It really is. Because at that point, God's coming. He raptures the church, sends hell on earth. And at Yom Kippur, brother, he's coming. We talked about it earlier. And he is not playing. I can't even imagine the suffering of the people who have defiled him and have done all of this horrible crap that we're seeing even right now. I can't, I do, I, there's no human word yeah. at all to describe what's going to happen when Messiah comes back. Mm. There's, there's no way, I, it's, there, it's, it's, it's beyond anything that we could even wow. yeah. believe. So Yom Hadim. And then the second word is Hitel Chavut. Hitel, Hitle, I'm sorry, Hitle Havut, Hitle Havut, meaning excitement, enthusiasm. That is the word they'll say to be caught up. Because when you're caught up, you're caught up with what? Excitement and enthusiasm. In fact, when David was bringing the, temp uh, the ark into the temple, to the threshing floor, everybody was what? They were rapturous. They were enthusiastic and they were caught up in the excitement of the moment. And when, who was it that touched, oh, that, that poor sap that, that touched, yeah. pow, yeah. Uzzah, Uriah or Uzzah or Uzi. Yeah, like the Uzi, right. Uzzah, well, that cat got struck down. I mean, if you remember when David went to God and said, what are you doing? God was like, whoa, 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 hold your phone, bro. Didn't I give you directions on how to carry this? Didn't I tell you what needs to be done? I don't need your help. You don't put this on a cart. This is a holy piece of furniture that was made by Bezalio and that was carried by Moses in the wilderness. And you have the nerve to come to me and say, why did that guy die? A, he wasn't a Levite. B, there weren't the right wood that was being used. You could go through the whole thing. Isn't that what we're doing now? Pastor Billy will continue his message in just a moment. If you would like more information about sermon series, books, and other study materials, you can call us at 732-314-1956, or you can email us at elanrestoration at gmail.com. You can visit us on Facebook for Shabbat and service times. And now we conclude today's message with Pastor Billy. So, while many will hold to a pre-tribulation catching up, we have to examine the text for what it says. The Hebrew equivalent, like I said, is the letter Dalit, and it means door. Okay? What God is doing in this chapter is the beginning of outlining the plan. He's laying out what comes next. And as we go through the rest of the chapter, you need to keep this here let he who has ears if you have ears to hear 
Let them hear our words. I've already butchered it, but you get the idea. So, Father, we give you glory and we give you praise. God, thank you. We thank you for this night. And as always, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you shalom peace. In the precious name of Jesus, the glorious Messiah, we pray. Amen. Amen. You've been listening to Pastor Billy Elias. Pastor Billy is the founder and pastor of Elon Restoration Fellowship in Toms River, New Jersey. Join us again as Pastor Billy bridges the gap between the Old and New Covenants. And as always, may the Lord bless you with peace. Yeah,